piano as an extension of you. Sing through the instrument. Make the instrument sing, which, when you think about it, is not a kind of a given, because the piano is mechanical. You hit a key, and there's all these things that happen, and finally a hammer strikes a string. Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Paul Grabowski is one of Australia's great musicians. He's a pianist and a composer of music for film, theatre and opera. He's won seven ARIA awards and pushed the envelope in jazz and improvisation. He's engaged in collaborations with Indigenous Australians, uh, worked in Germany for a number of years and collaborated across a remarkable range of people. His last two albums, for example, are Trist with Kate Sobrano, which came out in 2019, and Please Leave Your Light On with Paul Kelly, which came out last year. He is an Australian legend, and it's a delight to have him on the podcast today. Paul, thanks for joining me. Oh, it's great to be here, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Were you always into music? How did it start when you were a child? Look, I was always into music, and in a way which sounds quite uh, unusual, um, as recounted by my parents. Um, I was not very verbal as a very small child. So up until the age of nearly two, I didn't seem to have many words. And to the point where my parents were starting to be concerned about that. Um, But one day I started to speak uh, quite fluently and a lot of what I said was in relation to music. So I had been clearly listening and learning um, through, I guess, absorbing sound as, as the kind of primary way that I was learning about the world and, and what it was made of. Um, so very early on, I remember, um, well, I don't actually remember this, but I'm told we were uh, holidaying near Melbourne uh, at a place called Point Leo. And um, this would have been about 1960, I guess. And uh, the song Take Five was one of the rare moments where a jazz song, modern jazz song, becomes a commercial popular hit. And uh, it was playing through the speakers outside the Point Leo Lifesaving Club, you know, the old sort of tannoys that that they would uh, make announcements on. And I suddenly piped up and said, Take Five much to my parents' (laughs) amazement. So, um, you know, from that point on, it was very clear to them um, and to my my elder brother, Michael, who was also a musician, that I was uh, into music. And it kind of rolled from there. Um, I I listened then to a lot of records and they bought a piano when I was four. I started having lessons when I was five um, and then went to a more serious teacher when I was seven with whom I stayed uh, until I was about 18. So it's, it's really been my first love um, and uh, I've never seriously considered doing anything outside of something to do with music. Apart from, I think I was around 12, 
I, I toyed with the idea that maybe I could become a diplomat, but uh, I fairly quickly put paid to that notion, uh, as, as particularly after I fell in love with jazz. Jazz was the big turning point for me as a musician. So many of us as parents want to get our children into music. Is there anything that we learn from your musical education, your relationship with Mac Jost about uh, how to engender a, a love of music? You know, Mac was an amazing teacher uh, and really an amazing human being. I think anybody who had anything to do with Mac Yost was, you know, very struck by what a, a beautiful spirit he had. Um, and I think the thing about music with children is children should feel free to, to enjoy music. And I don't know about you, but I've met many people of my generation who had what I would describe as um, very traumatic experiences learning music. They had teachers who would hit them over the hands if they played a wrong note, things like that. So they associated music with pain. And uh, when we talk about playing music, I think the word play is very important because mm. it links the mature musician with the child. And that idea of finding uh, constant wonder and amazement in music and really having fun with it. I think if you're not having fun with music, then really something is not right in the way that you're going about it because it really should be fun. Whether you're an amateur musician, whether you're somebody who just enjoys having a bit of a play around uh, with, with nothing else in mind, or whether you're a professional musician, you know, who's really uh, at the top of your game, I think that the idea of having fun should never be absent. Now, you moved from your original classical training through to jazz. Uh, I understand uh, partly because uh, you worked out that that was a uh, quick way of attracting the opposite sex. Uh, what was the Australian jazz scene like in the uh, 1970s? Oh, gosh, I've learned to rue the day that I made, you know, <laughs> that comment. Um, <laughs> look, I, I played in the school jazz band. I went to Wesley College in Melbourne and... Uh, in the 1970s, they were one of the very few schools, in Melbourne at least, that had a jazz unit. Um, and uh, I, I you know, really couldn't play jazz at all, but I, I was you know, the most skilled pianist at the school at the time. So I got the gig in the band. And it was an all-boys all school. And one of the, uh, the great things that we did was we went to play a lunchtime concert at Methodist Ladies College, MLC very famous girls' school in Melbourne. And, you know, in, in the kind of overheated hormonal lives of young people, it was all way too exciting. And um, I think that I got a kind of very uh, distorted view at that point of what music was actually about. But, um, you know, what, what can I do about that? It, it, it was what it was. And uh, but, but what really got me excited about jazz was it's and it's going back to that word play again Andrew it's uh, jazz is about improvising and improvising of course has an element of play about it which separates it from playing classical music which is wonderful of course but in classical music you are very much tied to a particular you know, set of notes that are that are there it's the composition you are supposed to play those notes correctly the freedom that you have with that music is is giving it the poetry and, you know, imbuing it with your own interpretation. And there is a great deal of room to move uh, 
uh, in that. But with improvised music, you've really got a kind of a almost a clean slate to work with. I mean, jazz is not without structure, of course. It's got very, in some instances, in, uh, in some instances, very predetermined structure. But you've got a lot of room to move in jazz. It's it's incredible, and um, and you are really reliant on your own creativity, uh, your own fantasy, to be able to make it work for you. Um, and there are three principles, I think, in playing improvised music, which are really important and can be applied to just about anything in life, I think. One of them is being that good on your instrument that you can make the instrument do whatever it is that you want it to do in the moment. So you've really got to have a good technical command of the instrument and know what I describe as the instrument's geography really well. So be able to move all around that instrument and make it do what you know you want it to do mm. the second thing is you've, you've got to learn to listen because you know the people that you're playing music with in a, in a jazz situation and actually there's no difference in, in this regard uh to anything else of a musical nature and i think you would agree probably in life in general but listening is something which people need to learn to do it's not something which comes naturally for people who uh, gifted with hearing, then of course we hear, and that's part of our five senses. But to apply your hearing to listening is really a decision that you make. And um, you've got to kind of park your ego at the door in a way when you listen to somebody or to somebody playing with you um, in order that, you know, you uh, and that person are really finding a sufficient degree of empathy that what you're making becomes greater than the sum of its parts. And that leads to the third principle, which is trust. You know, you've got to really trust the musicians you play with in an improvised music situation because what they do is going to have a great uh, effect on what you do and vice versa. Um, it's very much a mutually supportive kind of operation. And I think that, you know, you, you, you can't underestimate how important that is. So those three things... Uh, you know, having the technical competence, the ability to listen and the ability to trust that really constitute what uh, what makes that moment very important. That's so interesting because I've never played jazz, but I've done some improvised acting and uh, as part of theatre sports in Sydney. And uh, certainly the best improvised actors, uh, people like Julia Zemiro were, uh, were at the top of the game when I was there, uh, had that combination of, of great acting talent but also an ability to listen and trust in order to produce extraordinary improv scenes. But classical music had its own uh, improv period too, didn't it? I, I mean, I've heard you speak before about how Bach and Mozart used to, used to improvise. What caused the death of improvisation within classical music? Well, it's a really good question. I, I would say that, you know, uh, the evolution of classical music, particularly in the 19th century, is very much tied to the evolution of society in general. Mm. As the 19th century emerged from out of the Industrial Revolution and became a, a much more organised society, and uh, as the nature of society itself became conditioned by vast uh, economic questions and, and the mobilisation of large numbers of people. The whole idea of organising people's time and making them 
you know, understand everything that they had to do, was mirrored in music. And I think that, you know, the emergence of the large forms like the Romantic Symphony and the long form, you know, sonata and, and you know, grand opera in the 19th century, all of those things are highly organised um, forms of music making. There is no improvisation really in them. Um, I think the closest you get to the improvised moment in that kind of music would be, for example, the piano music of Chopin, which often sounds to me like a written out improvisation. There's, there's detail in mm. the music, which sounds like he's kind of been playing around improvising and it's got that sort of very flowing, free sound about it, which suggests that it came out of the improvised moment. But, you know, I, I really do think that um, it's got to do with... Uh, with, with the emergence of a, of a much more structured and economically kind of organised society, in a sense. And if you have a look at the roots of jazz, jazz, of course, is um, a gift to the world from the African diaspora. And, um, you know, the origins of jazz really come out of the experience of slavery in the United States. Uh, and... Uh, those people used music in order to, you know, still link them to their ancestry, but also to give them a, a moment of self-expression and freedom, which reflected the situation that they found themselves in. So I think that, you know, the idea of freedom is inherent to jazz and the idea of being obedient to the text, if you like, is inherent in Western classical music post 1750s. So the music of the, the confident establishment is then to follow the notes as they're written down. Every player has their, has their uh, role and, and no one deviates from the, uh, the score. Yeah, you could say it's the music of the dominant class, if mm. you like, in my view. So there you are, uh, a, a, a jazz pianist in, uh, in Melbourne in the 1970s. It got to a point where you decided you needed to uh, up sticks and leave the country for a bit. Uh, what caused that? <laughs> well, that had something to do with a girl at the time. Um, but also, uh, I really felt that in 1975, I matriculated. In 1976, I went to Melbourne University Conservatorium of Music. And I lasted there a couple of years. And I think that, you know, people had very high expectations of me at the time. Um, but jazz was becoming more and more uh, an obsession of mine. And I really wanted to try my luck uh, learning that music in a place where I was far more likely to get further with it in a, uh, at a faster pace. And there was nowhere to study jazz at that time in Melbourne. It, I think the Sydney Conservatorium course had just started under Don Burroughs around that time. But I really wanted to, to, to get out of Australia. I'd had a taste mm. of that when I was... Um, from the, the summer of 74, 75, I spent in Germany as an exchange student. So I had a bit of a taste of what it was like to live for a while in Europe at a very impressionable age. So... Um, it didn't take much convincing. Uh, when my girlfriend at the time moved to London to study acting, actually, um, I followed uh, a few months later. And I ended up staying in Europe for several years. But during that time, also, I went to New York and spent several months in New York studying. So um, it was really a combination of factors. But 
uh, none of it was very structured, I must confess. It was, um, you know, a whole series of, ch a chain of accidents. I, I kind of just let myself uh, be thrown around at the mercy of the winds and, um, you know, that's what happened. <laughs> So, you know, when I think of uh, Germany and jazz, I, I think naturally of, uh, of the kind of Weimar period of the 1920s. I know much less about uh, German jazz in the 1980s. How, how would you characterise the scene there? And, and what did, wh how did that stretch you and, as an artist? Well, that's, a, again, a, a great question. German jazz, um, yep, sure, it had that kind of, you know, a, a, there was a definitive kind of... Uh, sense of, of jazz being a thing in Berlin, particularly in the 1920s. But jazz became part of the German cultural life, I think largely in the post-war uh, era because of the presence of American services there. Um, but also a lot of African-American musicians uh, moved to Europe because they found that they had more opportunities and less overt racism which might sound mm. ironic in a German context. I mean, I, I think that Paris was a much more kind of uh, attractive proposition for a lot of them. But the Germans really did take to jazz in a very big way. And, um, uh, you know, quite a few of the cities had incredible jazz scenes. Berlin, but particularly when it was a divided city, had an amazing kind of jazz scene. I actually lived in Munich uh, but that also was uh, a very vibrant jazz scene with several important clubs. And because of where it's located, uh, you could, you know, work all over Central Europe from, from, uh, from Munich. And I fell into, um, you know, the Munich scene um, and played with a lot of different people in a lot of different styles. So I learned a lot uh, in, a, in, in those years playing you know, sort of mainstream modern jazz with, with one person and playing sort of avant-garde, very European jazz, kind of high concept music um, and various things in between. So uh, I think in a way I, I got a taste of a lot of stuff and, um, yeah, I look, I look back fondly in those years. And in fact, uh, I've still got very, very good friends uh, who, who still live there and are still very active playing jazz. And we should drop some names in here. I mean, among the people you played with were Chet Baker and Art Farmer, uh, you know, extraordinary legends of, uh, of, of jazz. Yes, I did play with both those people. Um, you know, again, I think in 1980, 81, 82, 83, around that time, it was the sort of end of an era in which a lot of the great American jazz musicians, modern jazz musicians of the sort of bebop era uh, were starting to, you know, enter the final phase of their careers. Um, Johnny Griffin was another one. I, I did, you know, quite a few gigs with him. And, you know, his, his recorded legacy is amazing. I mean, you know, Thelonious Monk and, and so on. And just to, to be able to spend time with people like that and to soak up something of that history uh, was really, really an, an amazing opportunity and something that, um, you know, I, I think gives you very kind of a good foundation for understanding what the music is about, where you fit into it. And also, I've got to say, how to, to adopt, if you are looking for this, a certain distance from that tradition in order to define what it is that you do in relation to that. 
Now, one of the other remarkable things about you, uh, Paul, is the, the fact that you've worked in so many different uh, mediums. You've worked on, uh, on, on operas, on solo work, on collaborations. And you've also done a whole host of film scores as well. What's it, what's it like to do a film score? Do you feel a little constrained? Do you feel a bit more like you're an input rather than being the final product? Well, it's funny, you know, film is in, in so many ways the very opposite of what, you know, of what drives jazz because, a, as you say, I mean, film is all about constraint. I mean, the first thing about film is that as a film composer, you do work within a hierarchy and the hierarchy at the end of the day is controlled by, in the first instance, the director of the film. The director, of course, uh, there are more shady people behind the director. There are, you know, the various producers and, and even more scarily the executive producers who, who may have a view on, on this or that in my experience. <laughs> um, but um, where the jazz thing and the, and the film music thing really do connect for me is that as a film composer, you have to be very quick at making musical decisions. You've got to be able to construct ideas on the fly because with, with film music, there's never enough time. You really have to work very, very uh, intensely at deadlines constantly. And the music is often in film, the very last thing which is added to the, the various componentry which constitutes a film. And um, you've just got to really understand that, that that's the way it works. And so being a jazz musician and, and being used to the whole idea of improvising, so making lightning decisions in real time, does equip you, I think, very effectively to be able to construct, you know, sophisticated musical ideas in a reasonably short time. But the, the really difficult thing, I think, for a lot of people who've, you know, who are keen to get into film music, and, I mean, these days... Many, many people are keen to do it because now you can set up a kind of a very effective film music recording unit in your own living room if you want to. Um, what people have to learn is that as a film composer, you have to know how to, how to give away the sense of ownership that you have over what you do. In, in the sense that, you know, it is, you've got to hand it over. And you can't be precious about that. If the director says, I really don't like what you've done there, you know, unless you've got a kind of very strong aesthetic reason why you've made a decision and, and it's all in the service of the director's vision that you've gone down that path, unless you can argue that case very persuasively, you've really got to be prepared as a film composer to say, okay, I'll try something different. You know, explain to me what it is that, that you're feeling here. A problem there is that a lot of directors are not really musically literate, so they don't possess the language to be able to talk about music from a kind of technical point of view. And so there's a bit of interpretation. It's a bit like helping them to translate their idea into a foreign language. I mean, I've been very lucky in my life that I worked with some directors, particularly Fred Skepsy, for example, or uh, the late Paul Cox, who both had a very deep and, and genuine appreciation for music. 
and in Fred's case, particularly jazz. I mean, he loves jazz. So, um, you know, it was always fantastic to be able to converse with him about music because he was coming from a place that you knew you had a lot of shared understanding. Uh, with Cox, it was a different kind of process, but equally, you know, he, he had a great passion for music. So, um, you know, we always had great conversations. But, you know, I'd say that it varies from director to director and sometimes, you know, you, you really can feel frustrated and maybe the director feels frustrated with you too because, you know, you're not finding that commonality of language and, and that's something that's a real hurdle that you've got to find a way through. It, it's interesting because the more you talk about it, the more it strikes me that uh, composing for film is at the far end of the spectrum to playing a li live jazz gig, uh, and it's uh, it, it's it's sort of remarkable that you've do you've done both in that sense. Um, when you're composing, what are your uh, work methods? Do you uh, do you have a certain time of day when you get up? Do you uh, uh, is there a certain amount of work you aim to do? Uh, writers have word targets. I'm not sure what the equivalent is for a composer. Look, mostly um, I would say that uh, the early morning is a great time to write music. Before, you know, the day starts, the phone starts ringing, you get distracted by other things. You know, life is full of what I would describe as static. So you've got to kind of try and avoid the rush. <laughs> and... Um, with music, certainly the early bird does catch the worm. And I'll try not to use any more cliches, Andrew, I promise. But um, <laughs> it's, uh, that, that's what I, I would always recommend. Um, how do I work? Well, these days I work, it depends what I'm doing. But I find that more and more these days I work directly onto computer. I mean, the ability of computers now and software packages to give you the opportunity to work with very high quality tools means that you can do a lot of stuff on computers, just like the immediate realization of ideas. So that, I have to make it clear, I do it from a keyboard, from a, from a piano type keyboard, uh, but so I input all of the musical ideas from the keyboard. So there is that direct connection to playing. Mm. Um, but now, you know, there's amazing sort of libraries. If I'm writing orchestral music, and at the moment I'm the composer in residence for the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, so I am writing quite a bit of orchestral music. But there's a great way of being able to access that world, that sonic world, and really hear more or less how things are going to sound uh, with some of these amazing kind of orchestral libraries which you can work with. Nothing beats hearing the real thing, of course. I mean, I can write and write and write and, and, and hear this kind of um, version of what I'm writing coming out of my computer. But when I turn up at the orchestra to the first rehearsal of the piece and hear real flesh and blood people playing it, of course, that is where the rubber hits the road. I mean, that's an incredible feeling. And um, that's the moment where you think, wow, I'm so glad I decided to do this in my life. You know? what's, what's the limit of, uh, of work for you? If you're uh, working intently on a project, um, can you work all day or are you is your creative capacity sort of drained by lunchtime? I can work all day, but you've got to have breaks. 
What do you do in your breaks? I'll go for a walk or read a book, you know, play with a dog. Um, or talk to my wife, Andrew, of course. It's, you know, they, these are all, you know, just live life. I think it's really important if you, and I, I'm, I guess it would be the same with, with anything, but I'm wondering if it's the same with writers. If you come up against a problem and the problem is becoming intractable, you know, to beat your head against that problem is not going to solve the problem. But if you walk away from it and just give yourself some space, breathe the air outside and think about other things, then very often I find the, the solution to the problem suddenly occurs to you. Or at least when you return, you're hearing with different ears. And I think this is really important too that in spite of the fact that we might have heard something a thousand times, we never hear it the same way twice. Our, our experience of listening to things differs because everything is always changing. And so coming back to that musical problem, all of a sudden, you know, you come back and you go, wait a minute, I, I, I was wrong from bar one or... What if I did this? You know, uh, I'll, I'll modulate it bar five. And all of a sudden you go, okay, now this thing's on the road again. Do you listen to music during those breaks or are you concerned that you might accidentally put someone else's work into yours and end up sort of turning Holst into the Star Wars theme? <laughs> um, no, I probably don't listen unless there's something I want to reference specifically, I, I wouldn't be listening to things while I'm trying to compose. I think you get very confused if you do that. And what about when you're working with, uh, with collaborators? Uh, do, you have, do you find that going on uh, writing retreats is, uh, is helpful? Do you find it's useful to have them in the room with you? Or do you actually still find that solo production is, is valuable even on a collaboration you know, with somebody like Paul Kelly? Look, with Paul, um, the music that we play is all, or not, not 100%, but it's mainly Paul's songs um, that he has either recorded in other versions elsewhere or, you know, he's given me some kind of version of it to listen to. So we haven't actually sat down together and tried to write music together. Um, but with Archie Roach, I have done that. And uh, in the preparation for the album that I did with him a couple of years ago, um, called uh, Tell Me Why, um, which is, you know, the music also related to his autobiography, the same name. Mm. Um, we spent uh, the best part of a week at a retreat um, in the Adelaide Hills at a wonderful place called Eucaria, which is an extraordinary uh, little concert hall. And, um, yeah, he just, uh, you know, yarned and, and told me stories from his life and, you know, we had a lot of philosophical conversations. And out of that, every now and again, I'd go, wait a minute, there's a really big idea there. There's, there's a song in that idea. And um, I'd go away and write something at the piano and come back and say, this is how I've responded to what you were saying. And then um, he would write lyrics to that. I mean, I would literally do what we're doing now in a way. I would record it on my phone, bring my phone back to him and say, have a listen to this. And then he would write some words. 
And I think that, you know, I guess the point I'm trying to make with this story is that it depends on the person you're working with. I've collaborated with many people over the years and the process is always slightly different every time. I've collaborated with people from other cultures where we don't even speak the same language, a spoken language and or musical language. But we've figured out a way uh, of collaborating through musical will, I think. You you are a remarkable collaborator, and let's uh, let's dive into uh, some of those cross cultural collaborations you've uh, you've you've done. Um, your collaborations starting in two thousand and four five uh, with Nukar musicians. How did that come about, and and how did you uh, build both the sense of trust, but also build the music itself? So. One day I was sitting at home and the phone rang and it was an ex-student of mine who was working for Charles Darwin University in Darwin and he was involved in um, a contemporary music project which involved going to remote communities with a kind of mobile recording studio, I guess, and working with young bands in those places. And he wanted me to come to Darwin and help him to do his, um, I think, honours degree uh, in jazz piano. And the, the university were prepared to fly me up to teach him. And I said, well, that's great, but it's a long way to go from Melbourne to give piano lessons, you know, with the greatest respect. But this work you're doing in remote communities really interests me. And... Um, I have long harboured the desire to meet and talk to traditional musicians of our First Nations people with an eye to seeing whether or not it might be possible to collaborate with them on something. Because that's the sound of Aboriginal, particularly the all new music from that part of Australia, the sort of northeastern coast of the Gulf of Carpentaria. It's extraordinary music and it, it mystified me. I was really interested to know how it worked, what it was, what it was about and whether or not, you know, it was even allowed to, to have access to it from, from a sort of collaborative point of view. Anyway, he said, look, the place I would recommend to go is Nuka. So I went up to Darwin and, and taught him and he and I drove down to Nuka, which is, um, for, for listeners who may not know where Nuka is, it's due east of Mataranka. So you drive down the Stewart Highway past Catherine to Mataranka and then you go on what is very um, impressively called the Roper Highway, which is um, far from what most people would regard as a typical highway. And <laughs> at that point... Um, it was the end of the wet season and we got to the Roper River, which now has a bridge over it actually, but at that stage it didn't have a bridge. And the river was still in flood, so where, whereas there's a causeway, or there was, so at low sort of water levels, you could drive a, a troopy or, or a four-wheel drive or something through it. At this point, uh, we had to be barged down the river, which was amazing. It was a bit like that movie Fitzcarraldo, you know, down the sort of Amazon with, um, you know, red cockatoos and, and um, you know, 
crocs and you name it, the, the, the whole of nature was just, you know, doing its massive symphony, its magnificence. And I arrived at Nooka and within a very short space of time, it was funny, it was all, almost as if it was all meant to be, I met members of the Wolfred family, um, Benjamin and um, Roy, and they started to talk to me about their music. And they were very excited, I think. You know, they're very, and this is the thing. First Nations Australians are very, and this is, of course, they should be, extremely proud of who they are, what they represent, and, you know, what, what their entire belief system consists of. And, and there is a great deal to be learned from all of those things. One of the great shames about our post-1788 history has been our, the, the missed opportunities that we've had to really learn from those people. Um, anyway, uh, they were very generous and I found them, you know, sing, they sang a whole song cycle to me in, in this kind of hut. Uh, and I think that was on day one. So I'm sort of sitting there just with this incredible sort of performance going on, thinking, wow, that, that is some of the most amazing, powerful music that I've ever heard. And um, so I communicated to them, you know, who I was, what, what I was interested in. I played them some music that I'd recorded recently in New York. And of course, in complete defiance of my expectations, one of them said, oh, yeah, I've been to New York. You know, they, 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 were, they had gone to New York with uh, some kind of First Nations dance organisation at some point. So, you know, the idea that, they, that their experience of the world was really located within this particular geog geographical region was already, you know, completely thrown out the window. And about a year after that first visit, I went back with uh, with Archie, actually, and, and the late, great Ruby Hunter, and members of the Australian Art Orchestra, which was an ensemble that I had founded um, in 1994. Um, and we spent several days in Nuka learning these songs from these men. And they taught us very rigorously and were very unimpressed if we didn't remember what we'd learned the day before and, you know, kind of reminded us that this was important and that things like the correct order of sequence are really important, that you can't just play bits and throw them around. Uh, the order in, in which things happen is in a way a mirror of whatever the order is that, that, the, that is inherent in the songs themselves. And there's a kind of a sense of a connection to a cosmic order in all of these songs. So there's a great deal of various different aspects which you really only garner a working knowledge of over a considerable period of time. What it really means, what your responsibilities are when you're playing this music, but also the degree to which they were completely up for accepting whatever it was that we brought into the musical conversation as being part of that music. That that music is not a fixed entity, but it is something which embraces anything which 
they accept as being part of its reason for being. And in order to get to that point, of course, we needed to have the necessary permissions. And the person who was responsible for giving that permission was a great artist and lawman called Jambu Burabura, who is no longer with us. Um, but he was a man who everybody held in the highest regard. And he turned up one day at our rehearsal. He didn't say anything, but I could just tell that there was an incredible sort of sense of, okay, the main man is here now. And he then disappeared. No, you know, he was there for a while and then he was gone. And I really thought, oh, we've probably blown it now. He's probably going to say to, to the Wilfreds, I don't think so. You know, this is, this is not cool. This is not good what you're doing here. On the last night we were there, we gave a concert. So Archie and Ruby gave their, their concert with the art orchestra. But also they insisted, the Wilfreds insisted, that we open the show by playing with them what we had learnt to the community. So the community could see that we had actually gone there and learned something. And we were feeling fairly kind of terrified by that prospect and, and underprepared. But anyway, we did it. And while we were doing it, I looked up from my keyboard and I saw Jambu Burabura on stage performing with us. And that was when I realised, okay, we're, we're away. This is happening. And ever since that time, we've performed with the Wilfreds in various different iterations all over the world. Um, recently did this big piece that I created for, with, their, with and for them with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. But the, their work continues with uh, the art orchestra. I've, I've left uh, the art orchestra now and it's run by a great guy called Peter Knight. But, you know, the work continues with the Walfords and the, and the AAO. And I'm just so pleased and proud that um, it's become a really important part of, of my life, but also of the life of that organisation and particularly uh, the life of the Walfords. The musical style that uh, the people in the Nukar community uh, employ, it, it, it uh, doesn't use harmonies, is that right? It's, it's built over, uh, I think, what you'd call drones? Well, yes. Um, it's, it's a little more complicated than that. The drone is something that people associate with the sound of a didgeridoo, which in their language is called yidaki. But it's really not a, it's not quite that simple. The yidaki, in my view, is a drum, which happens to be played with the mouth by blowing into a hollowed out tree trunk. But if you listen to what is being played in that musical form, which is called manake, in manake, the use of the yidaki is like a drum with a low pitch and a high pitch. So, you know, there are drums in India like that, the Mridangam, which is a really important drum in Carnatic music in South India, uses the same kind of principle. And uh, the way that the Yidaki rhythms are lined up with the vocal lines is totally synchronised. Um, they are also in, in turn related to, to movement, so, so to dancing. But also... Um, Whilst there aren't harmonies, there are modalities. So there are sets of pitches and the intervals between those pitches are very important. 
that they are kind of identifying aspects of what's being sung. Um, and those the pitches can move around, like the sort of what we would call the the tonic or the, the uh, fundamental pitch can move around, but the, the relationships between the pitches uh, generally stays. And the other aspect of the music is something called homophony, which is that you can have more than one person singing at the same time, but they're not going to be singing exactly the same way. They'll be singing the same song, but they'll be interpreted with their own kind of inflections, their own ornamentation um, at the same time. So that's a really beautiful thing. And um, yeah, I love all that stuff. Has that shaped how you think about jazz? Uh, I know you've uh, you've had an interest in this uh, uh, notion that Ornette Coleman uh, talks about of harmonics. Uh, is that uh, is, is is working with uh, the, in the Nookar community uh, shaped how you think about tonal music generally? You know, Andrew, that may be the first time that an Australian politician has ever mentioned Ornette Coleman. I think you have broken ground here. <laughs> Great, significant ground. This is this is wonderful. Um, yes, look, Ornette is is probably one of the greatest influences on on my music, and uh, Ornette also was a philosopher. And harmonics is a difficult thing to pin down, um, but as I understand it, it's harmonics is really about relational musical moments. So. If you regard music as being formed out of relationships of various kinds, relationships of pitch, relationships of rhythm, relationships uh, between those two things, and if you look at harmony as emerging more out of a relational kind of situation between pitches than as fixed ideas that exist in and of themselves, I think of harmony as resulting from simultaneity rather than being something which, you know, is a separate kind of law of science, because it isn't really. Um, mm. Then that, that's the kind of universe of, of Ornette Coleman. It's, it's a universe conceptually not, dis, you know, not unrelated to, I don't know, string theory or particle physics, you know, the, a world of, in which the universe is constructed out of you know, subatomic particles which are, are purely relational, that we can't actually see, we can't de detect them as fixed points on a, on a graph, they, are, they only appear in relation to each other, right? So I think of music as being like that, and I, I certainly think that uh, what I've learned from uh, First Nations people, and Manike particularly, is very related to those concepts. And I did try to, to convince Ornette to come and work with, uh, with us, with the Crossing Rover Bar project. Um, <laughs> really? But, um, yeah, yep, great story. I, I went around to his loft in, in uh, Lower Manhattan and played pool with, with him and his, his agent. <laughs> That was an amazing, amazing day. I'd met him a couple of times, but um, look, he, he, yeah, it was, it was not long before he passed, and I think you know the moment had had passed too. But it, you know, had it been ten years earlier or twenty years earlier, I reckon he would have been right in there like a shot. It would have been right up his alley. So yeah, Ornette. 
Is there a distinctive style of Australian jazz? If so, how would you characterise it? I don't think there is a distinctive style of Australian jazz, but I think there is a, an Australian attitude which is expressed through Australian jazz. You know, the Australian character is, I think, very geared towards improvisation. And again, going back to our First Nations people, if you have a look at what is involved in maintaining uh, a certain relationship to the land in which you and the land live in a fairly sophisticated kind of relationship over tens of thousands of years in what has got to be some of the most difficult terrain on the planet, surely there's a degree of improvisation involved in that, in doing that successfully, that you have to be able to move with, this, with situations as they emerge pretty much as part of those situations, you know, be, be part of that process. Um, and I think that the, the best aspects of Australia uh, as a nation now are the ones in which we really let our creativity and our distance from some of the sort of more mainstream areas of of the of the particularly the first world, our distance from those things should give us uh, a certain advantage because we've able to respond, react, and come up with ideas which are peculiar to who we are. And given this sort of history of irreverence, which I think is also a part of the Australian character, and it, indeed of First Nations people too, famous for their incredible sense of humour, um, you know, that, that means that jazz is something which is a natural fit. And when I look back at musicians that I've worked with, like particularly Alan Brown springs to mind, the great Melbourne drummer, who started as a traditional jazz musician in a band called the Red Onions, um, but then went on to become one of the most uh, influential modern jazz drummers. He was an incredible improviser, but not only as a musician, also as a raconteur, as a poet, many, many different ways, and a very Australian character. You'd never find an Alan Brown anywhere else, from the way he spoke to what he did. Um, Joe Lane, the, the Sydney singer, was another one like that. Amazing character. Um, Bernie McGann, the great Sydney alto saxophonist. You know, these are, these are quintessentially Australian people. And uh, the fact that they're able to express themselves through jazz, that's where I think we can talk about jazz and Australian in a way which has meaning. Yes, and it does make some intuitive sense to me that a, uh, an egalitarian country will ha will be drawn towards an anti-establishment style uh, and perhaps also that in the blending of British traditions and Indigenous history and a multicultural migrant base uh, that you might uh, elevate the improv uh, star uh, approach to music. I want to wrap up by asking you a number of questions I ask uh, each of my interviewees. W what advice would you give to your teenage self? Look before you leap. Um, what, what, what advice would I give my teenage self? I would say um, treat everybody with respect. Uh, never assume anything about anybody. Allow yourself to be surprised at all times. Because if you're open to that possibility, more likely than not, it will lead to very positive outcomes.
What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Well, um, I used to believe in a kind of uh, theistic view of God when I was younger, but I no longer do. When did uh, that theistic view leave you? In my early 20s. Did it change your music? No, I think the music might have changed it. Right. This is a bit like scientists who uh, decide that they can no longer reconcile their scientific view with, uh, with, with their theistic view. Did, did music, music took you away from God in that sense? Well, look, it was, you know, music was always suggesting the possibility of the unknown and the infinite. And um, I also really, I'm a big reader and I, I really got into um, the works of Joseph Campbell around that time. Mm. And, um, you know, I read his big trilogy. Oh, actually, I think there's four books in it um, called The Masks of God. And it's a sort of survey of uh, different mythological strands. So there's one on what he calls primitive mythology. It's not a word I would use anymore. Um, Oriental mythology, Occidental mythology and modern mythology. And, you know, there's a lot of really extraordinary information in those books. And I just, I think it made me realise that if you choose to analyse any one particular uh, religion, then um, it's a part of the greater matrix of human thinking. Uh, and they, you know, various things can be related to various other things. Again, it's, it's coming back to this idea that I do believe in, which is that we, we live in a relational environment. So I think that, um, you know, deciding on one version of that as being an irrefutable truth does not rhyme with the way that I understand existence. When are you most happy? I think I'm, I'm happy when the people nearest and dearest to me are happy. Um, my family, um, my, my friends. Um, I mean, if I can be really self-indulgent for a moment, I'm really happy when I'm on stage. You know, I love, love, love being on stage, playing music. I think it's, you know, there's just moments of thrill which I, I can't even put into words. But uh, that feeling up there is very special. So that would definitely be right up there. You, you generate an amazing emotional power. I mean, I was uh, uh, listening and, and re-listening in recent days to Please Leave Your Light On, um, and I still can't hear the song If I Could Start Today Again without it making me cry. Um, and it's, it's such, a, su such an evocative... Uh, piece a piece of music and, and such an extraordinary craft that you you perform to be able to to just shape people's emotions within uh, within a few minutes but andrew that's so resonant in the words of that song i think um you know that that song really it kills me too it's really hard for me to just maintain my decorum when we're playing that song because you know, the words that it conveys, the, the, the ideas in that song, who has not felt that? I mean, you'd have to be a person with no feeling at all, heart of stone, to have not 
bought into what that song is, is all about. So it's right, right at the heart of the human condition. But, you know, when you're working with material like that with a guy like Paul, you're halfway there already. Um, and, you know, look, I, I do pride myself on, trying, on being able to, I hope, convey feeling through music. I mean, what else is music there for if not to convey feeling? So he's, he's got the words. He's already written the song. All I'm really doing is bringing my own kind of spin to it. And if you have a listen to the piano part in that song, what I've done is I've transcribed the original guitar part and then use that as the basis for building a kind of a pianistic um, interpretation of the song. So I've made it sound very much like piano music, but it's coming originally from, from very quite a strict adherence for, for much of it uh, to the original guitar part. Because I, I thought when I heard it, there's not much I can do to improve that. I mean, I can't go away and, you know, as I've done with some of the other songs, really make my own version of this because it's kind of perfect. Why would you want to mess it up? You've said that Sinatra is there in spirit on that album. What do you mean by that? Well, when Paul and I were making the album, we were listening to... We found that we both have a great love for and listen to a couple of Frank Sinatra's capital albums. Um, I mean, I love a lot of Sinatra, but um, these two albums were uh, In the Wee Small Hours and Frank Sinatra Sings for Only the Lonely. And they're both uh, orchestral albums arranged by the great Nelson Riddle. And um, of the two, my own personal favourite is The Only the Lonely One. You know, he casts himself as, uh, you know, because we know that he, amongst other things, he was also a really great screen actor, Frank, Frank Sinatra. But, you know, he really has cast himself as a man with a broken heart. Uh, or either that or a man with one massive chip on his shoulder uh, and feeling very sorry for himself in song after song after song, but with incredible... Um, verismo, I think real, in real intelligence and real integrity. And when you hear him sing the you know song like um, "What's New" or you know the songs I know, "I Need a Lonely No" or um, you know, "I Guess I'll Hang My Tears Out to Dry," one for my baby and one for the road. These are all songs on that album. I mean, he makes you believe them. Mm. Really does. You go, oh my god, I, I I've been there. I know that. I know that feeling and I've never heard it, you know, communicated quite like that. And I think that really influenced us in what we were trying to make with our little recording is we wanted those songs to speak the truth as much as we could get them to do that. And, you know, when I listen to it, I, I don't often listen back that often to the stuff that I've done in the past, you know, who's got time and we've got to move on. But I am pretty proud of that record. I think we've done something quite special there. Two final questions. Uh, what's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? I think walking is really important. For a lot of the last couple of years, I've done a lot of walking. So I, I, I sometimes 
would routinely walk 10 kilometres a day, uh, like do a 10 kilometre walk, that is. It's not an aggregate of 10 kilometres, but actually walk that distance. Um, and, you know, I think that's, that's a really good thing to do because I'm not a runner. And whilst I really admire people who are, I, I just can't do it. But I think that walking, you know, at a good pace is a really good form of exercise. So that's what I would always recommend to people. And finally, Paul, do you have any particular uh, food strategies you follow? Are you a pescatarian, vegetarian? No, I'm, I'm, I'm an omnivore, but um, I find that, you know, as I get older, I'm less reliant on eating meat, particularly red meat. Um, I'm, I'm very blessed to be married to somebody who's a really wonderful uh, cook, so we, we eat very well in our house. Um, but, you know, it's not about fancy. That's, that's not what we do. It's just good. I think the ingredients are really important and, you know, making sure that um, you're, you're, you're just very aware. I think that's one of the other things. It's a bit like playing music. When you're eating food, you've got to be aware of what it is, where it comes from, and why you're very lucky. Not that we should be going around on our hands and knees, but, you know, don't forget. Don't take it for granted. Mm. It's, mm. Yeah. And finally, Paul, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Wow. Yeah, I, I knew you were going to ask me this question and I did grapple with it. I think Mac Yost probably would be the person who's had the most impact on me in that respect. Your childhood music teacher. Yes, because he was a man of, of great warmth and integrity, again, there's that word, and um, he also, you know, went the road less travelled as a musician. He, he made some really interesting choices. He was the first pianist in Australia to perform, you know, some music of Charles Ives, the American composer. He was uh, an incredible... Um, believer in, in the greatness of the music of Bach. Not that that's very unusual, but his particular way of, of referring to Bach as the master. I mean, partially because he was, um, you know, he, he was loaded up with a, an incredible stutter. Mac had a stutter which really could stop the clock. Uh, and he, he really couldn't say my name and... <laughs> I'm talking about Paul here, not Grabowski. Forget Grabowski. But, uh, you know, he, <laughs> he, he learned to sort of circumlocute all of that through uh, finding other ways of saying things, using other words to stand in for words he couldn't speak. And um, he was just a beautiful guy, you know, really, really caring. He was almost like a second father. And you know, I was with him through all those years, difficult years, seven to, to 18, and he'd never taught a child before. He was the senior lecturer in piano at the conservatorium. So he was used to, to you know, teaching 18 plus. But as uh, I got older, he started to teach more young people too. So it was not so unique. But I think, you know, I often think about Mac. And um, every time I play the piano, probably I'm thinking about Mac. And he taught me about the importance of making a beautiful sound at the piano if you if you know how to do that. There are different ways of doing it. But to use the piano as an extension of you, sing through the instrument, 
make the instrument sing, which when you think about it is not a kind of a given because the piano is mechanical. You hit a key and there's all these things that happen and finally a hammer strikes a string. But it really is, a, it's a machine, 19th century machine. And, but he taught me how to make it sing. And I think any great pianist will say somebody taught them how to make the piano sing. And that person's very important in their lives. Well, that's a beautiful, beautiful tribute to, uh, to, to your teacher there and uh, a reminder to all of us to, uh, to thank our teachers. Uh, Paul Grabowski, Master of Music, Guru of Jazz, Sultan of Swing, thanks so much for taking the time to join me on the Good Life podcast today. Andrew, it's been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed it very much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you'll like past interviews with Alice Pung, Tim Minchin, and Carl Vine. We appreciate getting feedback on the podcast, so please leave us a rating or tell a friend about the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier, and more ethical life.